The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. This is our 19th anniversary. Our first meeting was on December 7th, 1997 at the home of Donna Linda Crines, if you remember. I wasn't there at this meeting because I had to do something else, but my son preached on 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And, um, and then he preached the next week because I couldn't come the next week either. But I want to talk to you about what our conviction was. This is actually what I preached about the first Sunday I got to preach in the church in uh, 1997. And this is our conviction. This is the reason we went ahead and started this church. We had a group of people who wanted, we wanted to start a church. And the reason we did it was because we, this is what we believe happens when the gospel comes in power. We actually believe that God changes lives, that he uses the gospel to penetrate hearts and to change lives. And so what we want to look at this morning is this, uh, is this truth. It's found in, in fact, let me back this up. I want to read to you, if you'll turn to uh, Acts chapter 2, please. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's narrative. It's a story of the Jesus pouring out the Spirit. If you remember what the Bible teaches, is G- what Jesus taught and said was that when he went back to the Father, after his death and resurrection, he would pour out the Spirit upon his people. It's a very expressive uh, way of putting it, that the Spirit would come in power and he would come upon all of, the, all of the followers of Jesus. And this is when it happened. In fact, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 8, notice what it says. It says, but you will receive power. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is after the, he's raised from the dead, but he's not going to be physically with them much longer. And so he tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So here is the very beginning of the church. And it's made up of this very small group. On the very first day that the gospel was preached in Jerusalem, 3,000 people turned to Christ in faith and became the very core of the church. And that began to grow very quickly. And so he says, on the day of Pentecost... Uh, you're going to experience the Spirit coming upon you. Something significant is that Pentecost means 50, and it's the 50th day after the Passover Sabbath. But it's also had become by this time a celebration of the anniversary of the giving of the law. And so God gave his people the law on Mount Sinai, if you remember, through Moses, He gave him his law, and now Jesus gives the Spirit to his people. And as Paul says in Romans 8, the reason that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus is because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that is the power of the Holy Spirit, sets you free from the law of sin and death. So God has done something glorious in giving us the Spirit. He comes and he changes the heart. Now I want to read the account of this outpouring of the Spirit beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were there, they were all together in one place. They were in the upper room. If you remember, they went to an upper room to uh, celebrate um, Passover with Jesus. 
and all kinds of things happened there. And then they went out and he was arrested and crucified. And we assume that this is the same place they're at now. When the day of Pentecost, this is 50 days later, the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with unlearned tongues is the idea. They began to speak of the glory of God in languages they had not learned. It was supernatural as the Spirit was giving them utterances. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, why, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They could tell they were Galileans because of their accent. They were from up in the hill country up north. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. These people were from all over the place. They had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, the celebration of the anniversary of the giving of the law. And all of a sudden, they're hearing these people, these Galileans, speak about the great works of God, no doubt the great works of God in Christ Jesus, uh, being proclaimed and God praised in languages they knew, but they couldn't figure out how these Galileans could have known those languages. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement, great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, oh, they're just full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand, basically says, it isn't late enough in the day for them to be drunk. It's only 9 a.m. They haven't had time to get drunk. This isn't that. This is what this is all about. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, verse 15. For it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he begins to quote Joel. And it shall be in the last days, which we are living in. They begin at the pouring out of the Spirit, the last days. In the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all flesh. That is, every kind of person among my people. Not just a certain group. Not just some prophets or some priests. But on everybody, everyone among my people. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They shall be spokesmen for God. They'll speak in the power of the Spirit. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. They shall be mouthpieces for God. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and terrible glorious day of the Lord shall come. Let me just explain one thing. This is a prophecy out of Joel and what he's talking about is the beginning and the end of this age we are living in. 
We are living in this particular phase of God's program. It's often referred to as the kingdom of his dear son that we have entered into. And the king is invisible to us. We can't see him. He's in the third heaven, but he's reigning over his people and over his kingdom. And so he says at the end, he's telling us what it's going to be like at the end in verse 19 and 20. But at the beginning, they heard people speaking in every one of their languages about the great works of God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Throughout this entire period of time from the pouring out of the spirit until the second coming of Christ, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and brought into a relationship with God, forgiven of their sins and given life in Christ Jesus. And so he says in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. They were first, they were eyewitnesses of these things. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, and he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay." You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter explains, David can't be talking about himself because listen to how he explains his brother. And I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. A descendant of David was to sit on the throne of the kingdom of God. And so he says that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he will neither be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he went back to the Father, and the Father gives him the Spirit to give to us. And so he says, he has poured forth that which is both you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Whatever your eschatology is, whatever you believe about the future, this verse says that Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies have been made his footstool and he's going to return. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now you can tell that's some tough words to tell people that just crucified Christ. This is right in your face. And he's saying God has raised him from the dead. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Well, I've never had anybody say that to me after preaching the gospel. What a wonderful thing that would be for somebody to say to you. I've had it happen in private conversations, but for somebody to say to you, well, what should I do once they hear the gospel? 
And Peter said to them, this is what you should do. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's you and me. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this twisted generation that crucified the Lord of glory. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now here's what I wanted to communicate to you. Our conviction in 1997 was that this is what happens when the gospel comes in glory. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says this, For our gospel did not come to you, that is to the Thessalonians. It did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with much full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we became among you for your sake. He's saying that the, the, the first sign, first sign that the gospel has actually come in power is the impact it has on the preachers who proclaim it. Apostolic preaching that Paul's talking about always included the resurrection of Christ, the coming day of judgment, and salvation in his name. And they were told, just as you saw here in Acts 2.21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord doesn't just mean shouting his name. It means turning to him in faith, believing upon him. So first of all, what we see in this text is when the gospel comes in power, first of all, it will pierce the hearts of those who hear. It will pierce the hearts of those who hear. The gospel won't simply be an interesting little thing that I heard today about Christians. It will become a message that penetrates your heart. And that's what he says in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? It pierced their heart. There's, what, they, what that is referring to is a deep emotional remorse they felt for rejecting Christ and screaming to the Romans, crucify him, crucify him. Deep emotional pain. And it came because of the proclamation of this gospel message to them. There's a sequence here. It literally says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. In other words, this is the difference between those who hear the gospel and do not respond and those who hear the gospel and do respond. If you remember back in Isaiah chapter six, God sends Isaiah to the people of Israel to proclaim a gospel message to them. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to preach to them and tell them to repent and turn to me instead of turning to their idols. And then God says, but they won't listen to you. Their hearts are not going to be penetrated by the message. They're going to reject what you say. And so Isaiah, being a smart enough uh, (laughs) prophet to know that that's a tough assignment, said, how long, O Lord, how long am I supposed to go and preach this message to people who refuse to hear it? And basically his answer was until they go into captivity. This was to bring them to the place of judgment. They're going to go into Babylonian captivity. But what this does tell us is when the gospel comes in power, it pierces the hearts of those who hear. 
and they realize that, re- that rejecting Christ is a critical sin. We could stand up here all day long and tell you how horrible it is to reject Jesus Christ, but when the Spirit opens the eyes to the truth of the gospel, nobody has to tell you that this is a sin to reject God's offer of salvation in Christ. The second thing that happens when the gospel comes is it emboldens the mouths of preachers. It emboldens the speakers, the preachers. And listen to what it says in verse 38 through 40. Peter said to them, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God shall call to himself. Being called by the Lord means that you hear the gospel and the Spirit causes it to penetrate the heart. God is calling you to himself when that happens. And it says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, the generation he's talking about is a generation that rejected Christ. We live in a generation like that as well. And so he would appeal to us, be saved from this perverse generation. Turn to Christ and be saved. Paul does this with full conviction, as he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He is is fully convinced of the truth of the gospel. And so he proclaims it with everything that he is. In fact, he gave his life to it. Now, he says, uh, we, we said that this emboldens the mouths of preachers. What kind of preachers? Well, he's going to use, he uses two words to describe these preachers. The first word, <clears throat> kerux, and I'm sure you're really interested in this, me giving you two Greek words, but I'm going to do it anyway. A kerux is someone who preaches with the authority of the one who sent him. That's what it's emphasizing. It's emphasizing the fact that he, what he speaks is with authority because he's bringing the message that the ruler has given him to bring. But there's another word for preacher that's translated preacher in the New Testament. It's this word, euangelizes. And this word is a word for gospel, only proclaiming the gospel. In other words, this is emphasizing the nature of the message that they preach. They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. They preach good news. They bring Now, the idea of gospel is it's the kind of news, if you understand it, it will cause your heart to leap with joy. I got a letter yesterday from Theo Shimre, who's a guy that I've known for a long time. He came from India to get educated over here so he could go train pastors. And he ended up at Great School Theology and went through there. And we've had him here at the church actually some years ago. And um, he wrote me this letter. I told him, I said, this is the best email I've ever received from a missionary. Because almost invariably, all the emails you get from missionaries have to do with what they're facing and how they need money, and this is how much they need. This was different. This was a guy appealing to me to appeal to you to pray for them because they're facing something that money can't fix. And this is what he said. I, I promised him I would pass this on to you. He says, dear friends, greetings. This small, this, this email comes with an urgent prayer request. I hope you are aware of what dramatic moves are being taken in India. The current situation is very intense, difficult, and chaotic. The Modi government, that's the government that's in control right now, seems to have been doing great work to rule and, and 
to rule out all hidden money and terror funding. They wanted to get rid of all the funding of terrorism, and so what they did was they demonetized the, the currency there. Now that means that you can't get any money. You can go to your bank and they don't have any money to give you. It's kind of like the Great Depression. I don't remember that, I wasn't alive. I don't think anybody here was alive during the Great Depression. But during the Depression, you couldn't get money from the banks. And nobody would take any other form of payment. And that's what's going on in India right now. Well, Theo is the head of a ministry and he has a whole school. He has a family and several children. And then he has a whole school of students. And the way it works in India is they don't pay you, you take care of them. So he's got these students that he has to take care of. He has to feed them, provide housing for them, and teach them the word of God. And that's what he's been doing. But get this, he says, um, we know that the government was doing this for the right reason, but the problem is now it's hurting the poorest of the poor. They can't get money to even meet their most basic needs. He says, those who are suffering the most are not the rich, even though the currency has been demonetized. Those suffering most are common people like us. The majority of Indians live from hand to mouth without any savings. They, I can remember hearing uh, Ramesh Richards' dad tell about what it was like in India. It was in preaching the gospel that most people you talk to, they work all day long, get paid at the end of the day, and go buy food for their family. That's how it works. Now, they don't have any good unions over there. <laughs> but that ain't the problem. The problem is the sin of the heart. The government has not been able to supply funds to the banks, so banks are unable to provide money to the customers. All banks are cashless except some big branches, and even those receive very little cash every week. Hopefully things will get better by the end of December, but nothing is predictable as the opposition party has taken a strong stand against the demonetization of currency. We need worldwide prayer support. I've never had a missionary tell me that. We need worldwide prayer support. We need you to pray for us because we don't know what we're going to do when this money runs out. He had just bought enough food. He had enough cash to buy food, and so they have food on hand right now for the next couple of weeks. He says, I look after the students, my family, and staff. I've had to wait at the bank all day long to get some money, but I returned home empty-handed. I had to run here and there for paperwork as there was sudden changes in the necessity of paperwork for banks and for FCR, uh, FCRA, which is groups like them, they get their funding from outside of the country. They have shut them down, their supply down. So he says, I'm running helter-skelter everywhere trying to obey the law to get this done so they can feed the people in the ministry. He says, due to the current situation, I have to... to uh, I have, have gone back to furnishing things for ministry, especially to look after the family and students and not able to go to winter Bible camp, which is going to be held as usual at our mother church in Manipur, starting on December the 15th through the 17th. Ami, my brother, and I know Ami, he went to Cornerstone Seminary, wonderful young man who's working with his brother trying to train men to preach the gospel in India. And they're under incredible pressure. If you remember Angelo <clears throat> Tolentino who came here 
a friend of Ryan's, and he had gone to India trying to, to minister in this ministry, but the government was so hard on him, the police were hounding him continually that he could only stay for a few months and he had to come back and renew his passport. And so now he had to come back home and he's planted a church down in San Diego. It's a tough, tough mission field. And so he says, by grace, his brother's going to preach at this camp. He says, by grace, we had already obtained the ticket the plane ticket, another two men of God will come and join on me to teach during the camp. In other words, everything is set up for the camp except the cash arrangement for the camp. Pray for on me, for others, the other two brothers, and in his absence, I'll be replacing his teaching classes. I'll be teaching his classes as well as my own. I just can't get over when you communicate with people who are in completely different circumstances, and ministry for them is so iffy. They would never wear clothes like this They would never uh, come to a meeting like this where we could sit in these comfortable chairs. And believe me, they would think they're very comfortable. Ministry's hard, really hard. And he says, as for us, we will still trust the Lord. We will still trust the Lord. I know this has happened by, this has not happened by chance. Yesterday, the demonetization of our currency was ordered. I had purchased 500 kilograms of rice as if I knew what was going to happen, and I didn't. Otherwise, we too could have been living on starvation. So we are safe in God's arms, in God's arms. My children are going to school. Our students are getting food. So also my family, we are absolutely fine at this moment. We are concerned about what will happen if things get worse. Otherwise, we'll be fine. Praise God for his faithfulness. Yes, God's mercy is new every morning. His hand is provided for our need today. Pray for our family and ministry and nation. And for next week and the week after, Theo Shimre and his brother Ami Shimre. And I would plead with you this week to spend time in your families praying for this ministry and for these men. They're just caught in a, they're caught in a trap here. And God, we have to pray that God would intervene and deliver them and bring them through this time. Well, uh, the reason I mentioned him is uh, I was thinking about this thing of emboldening the mouths of preachers. Um, I can remember when when Theo was here, I kind of got irritated and when he came to our church and he shared a little bit and people came over to our house afterwards. And in his conversation, I could tell he wasn't saying it he wasn't saying it uh, brashly, but it was obvious he thought we were a bunch of spoiled people. <laughs> and I kind of got upset about it because I'm so spoiled and I don't like anybody telling me that. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> he's a truly humble man. And uh, he is in a difficult setting and circumstance. They're training men to go into even other countries around India to take the gospel. That's all they're interested in is seeing the gospel go out in power and seeing people's lives changed. So I'm just appealing to you as, as the church, because that's what churches do, right? We pray. I mean, that's who we are. We're people who pray. We call upon the name of the Lord because we believe he hears us and he can answer our prayer. So I'm asking you, please, to pray for this, this ministry, these people. And so these, these two kinds of preachers, and, and this is what Theo is, He's a, he, he all knows that his authority is in Christ and that God has assigned him this duty to proclaim the truth of who Christ is 
even when there's great opposition. But he also is somebody who understands that the message that he has to give is good news. And it should fill the heart with joy when you understand it. It's a, it's a message, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that fills our hearts with joy. I, I gotta tell you, I must admit, right now, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but right now, I am so full of joy in the gospel. It is such an incredible blessing to think that for 19 years we've been trying to preach the gospel, to convince people to believe the truth of the gospel, that God has so loved you that he sent his son into the world to die in your stead and to give you life, to make you a part of his family, to make you an object of his grace. Paul says in Romans 5 that when we get saved, we are ensphered in grace and that all of God's dealings with us from that moment on or a manifestation of his grace is giving himself to us freely. <laughs> and even Theo, you can tell, he believes that even though he's facing some unknown times, what's going to happen? And so this is, this is the kind of, this is the kind of men, this is the kind of messengers that God has sent. And guess what? It isn't just the guys who preach to congregation, it's all of you. You are, in a real sense, a bearer of good news because you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then <clears throat> notice the hearer's response. When, when he preaches, when, when Peter preaches the gospel in power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the people respond by saying, because it's penetrated their hearts. And so they say, well, what should we do? Now, Peter responds with great boldness, and, and you've got to understand his boldness because he's speaking to a group who've already put pressure on him to shut up and be quiet. He's been arrested, he's been beaten, he's been jailed, and yet he responds to them with great boldness. And he gives a divine command in verse 38. If you look in your Bibles there, Peter said to them, Repent, change your mind. Change your mind about God and about Christ and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you bow the knee to Christ, you receive him by faith and he forgives your sins and fills your life with the Holy Spirit. And then he gives a divine promise. He tells them if they do this, and just what I just said, he will forgive their sins and give them the spirit. And third, he presses for a response. He actually calls on them to respond. He says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. In other words, they, lived, they, were, they were members of a generation that had rejected Christ. And he says, you believe on Christ, repent and turn to him. Don't take the way of the culture you're in. Don't make the same decision, but turn to Christ in faith. And then um, giving this, these, this divine command, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And this glorious promise, salvation through the spirit who applies the cross work of Jesus Christ and then he presses them to respond. Um, Jesus had called this, na this generation that he's preaching to, he called them unbelieving, perverted, and adulterous, and sinful. And they were headed for judgment. 
And he wants to save him from that judgment, amazingly. And then the third thing is that it will reach, when the gospel comes in power, it will reach the ears of Christ's sheep. He says in verse 41 and 42, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There was evidence that they'd actually turned to Christ. They were formed into a community. In verse 39, he says, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. You know, the Lord is calling people. And uh, we had this conviction when we started that, that the Lord is calling people. And he's going to save people. He's going to give them life and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And when he calls, they'll come. Romans 8 says, uh, as many as he set his love upon, he lays out a plan to conform them in his image of Christ. And those that he does this, he calls. And those whom he calls, he justifies. That means when God supernaturally calls you to himself, you're going to believe and he's going to declare you righteous by clothing you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, the proof they were the proof that they were really sheep, that is that they belonged to Christ. Jesus had said back in John 10, "My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand." I grew up in a group that thought you could lose your salvation. And I was talking to one of these guys that I'd known since I was a kid, and I asked him, are you afraid of losing your salvation? And he says, no, I'm not afraid of losing my salvation, but you believe you could. Well, I believe theoretically I could, but I know I'm not going to because he loves me. See, that's a part of saving faith. Saving faith includes assurance of salvation. That's what John Calvin said. Our assurance of salvation is a manifestation of our faith in Christ. We have believed on him. And so the proof was they received the word. They received his word, verse 41. They obeyed his command, also in verse 41. And then they begin to follow him. That is, they, they begin to listen to his voice. Christians characteristically talk to God. They pray. But they also listen to Christ through his word. And so we take the word in and, and we actually recognize that he's speaking to us. Have you ever had that happen when you're reading the Bible and you know that this is God speaking to you? You might not even know the sits and leaving. You don't even know the situation in life that this writer is writing into. But you know that God's speaking to you at that moment. You know that he's speaking to you. So in their corporate life, it's centered on the apostles' teaching. It says they, they continued in the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was a teaching all about Christ and about his death and burial and resurrection and ascension and his rule from heaven right now. And then it flowed into their life of fellowship. They actually began to love each other. Now, look around the room a second. This is not a large group, but think of it. This group of people, we're a group of, we're a group of, uh, of people that are called the body of Christ. It doesn't matter what your social status is. doesn't matter what race you are. We are one in Christ. We're members of the body of Christ. The thing that we have in common is Christ. It's not where we live. It's not what car we drive. It's the fact that we are one 
in Christ. And that's why the, the, the world would say, well, you guys are really good friends. Yes, we are. But it's deeper than that. We're one in Christ. And this is why he has put us together with such diversity is because the body of Christ isn't supposed to be like a body with one member on big eyeball. We have many members, but we're one body. And so he has gifted us differently. In their corporate worship, they came to the Lord's table and if this flowed out of a life of prayer, they prayed together continually. Now they, they heard the word of God continually. They didn't, nobody, none of them had a Bible to carry around. Almost everybody in here has a Bible in your hands. Almost everybody. And, and all of you own Bibles or you have access to Bibles. Really easy, maybe just on your smartphone or something, but you have access to Bibles. They didn't. It's really hard to carry those big scrolls around. And the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So it was all verbal. When they continued in the apostles' doctrine, what'd they do? They talked about what they heard taught. And somebody would say, wait a minute, I don't think you have it right. This is what he said and this is what he meant. (laughs) But it was all about what they heard. Well, we have it in scripture. Some of us own 15, 20 Bibles. And that's a wonderful blessing, but it's also a great danger in the sense that it's always available so I can put off getting into the word. I'll do that next year. Well, this next year is just in a couple weeks. <laughs> I need to be in the word. And then I, and I, the reason I say that is I want to ask you this question. Uh, has the gospel come to you in power? Has it come in power to you? Has the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news of a, a God who is willing to send his own son into the world to rescue you from your alienation from him and your sin? Has it come in power in your life? If it hasn't, I would say to you, listen. Listen carefully to his word. If you want to get into it yourself, open the Bible up and by yourself and start reading through the gospel of John and listen to the claims of Christ. But when you hear the, the gospel and when it comes to you, God wants to bring it to you in power and he's the only one who can. And so we praise God and we give him thanks for the fact that he has opened our eyes. He's opened our eyes. What a good God we have. That he's able to take those who are blind and give them sight. Some of you are sitting here right now then you have come to faith in Christ over these last 19 years. Why? Because God called you and he gave you the gift of faith because of his great love for you. He sent his son to die for you and to rescue you and then he called you to himself. So this is what we believed and this is why we started this church is because we believe that what happens when the gospel comes in power and that doesn't mean loud preaching. It means something much more than that. It can be loud, it can be soft, but what it is, it's when the spirit of God takes his word and he causes it to penetrate your heart. Some of us, I'm, I know I am, I'm sure you are too. You're praying for some people in your life that you'd so desperately want them to come to put their faith in Christ. And it just seems like they've heard it a million times and they have no interest. Let me tell you what happens when, when it comes in power is this is how Paul puts it. The one who said that light shine in darkness causes the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in your heart. When you see Christ for who he is, When the Spirit of God opens your eyes and you see Christ for who he really is, you will never be the same. 
You'll never, ever be the same. It will change your life forever. And that's why we keep on trying to preach the gospel. That's why we keep on preaching every week. Have you noticed that every week somebody preaches here? Every single week. And we preach for 40 minutes or longer sometimes when Ryan preaches. Let me pray for you. Father, we appeal to you today that the Holy Spirit would come and bring this gospel message to our hearts in a powerful way. Open our eyes. Let us see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ today. For all of us who've already believed, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a renewed hope, a renewed commitment, because you've put the Spirit upon us and you said you would speak through The Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh and all of us would become spokesmen for you. And it's an amazing thing, but there are people who will listen to each one of us. And we pray that we would come to see that you've given us this glorious, glorious task of being ambassadors for Christ, to speak for him. We pray that we would be faithful to do that even this week. Father, we thank you for the the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest possession that we have. There's nothing that can compare with it. This is the great blessing that we have received from you. And we thank you for it. We give you praise for it, Father. If I could say it in other languages, I would. But I just want to say to you, you have done a glorious, magnificent work in your son. Thank you for this salvation that you have given to us simply by receiving it as a gift. We are thankful for it, and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.